Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. If the story told in the new film, Blink of an Eye, weren't true, nobody would believe it and everyone would criticize the film for being way too far-fetched. But the story told in Blink of an Eye is true, and it is a story that explores classic themes of friendship, brotherhood, heroes, triumph, tragedy, and redemption, while being set in the modern-day world of stock car racing. So if you are interested in or intrigued by auto racing, I promise that you will love this film and enjoy this conversation. And if you happen to have zero interest in NASCAR, then I would actually argue that you especially need to listen to this conversation and see this film for reasons that I'll get into here with the writer and director of Blink of an Eye, Paul Taublieb. Paul has been writing, directing, and producing big wave surfing films, auto and moto GP race films, and freestyle motocross films for over 20 years, including the Emmy award-winning film Unchained, The Untold Story of Freestyle Motocross, which is a fantastic film and it is available on Netflix now. Paul has also worked on films for ESPN's 30 for 30 series, and he was instrumental in the creation of the X Games. So, in other words, Paul has done a lot of stuff, and his latest film, Blink of an Eye, centers around the fateful racing of the Daytona 500 on February 18th, 2001, and the lives and the backstories of Michael Waltrip, Dale Earnhardt Sr. and Jr., and really the entire NASCAR community. Blink of an Eye is a remarkable film and another significant achievement in the career of Paul Taublieb, and you can pre-order the film now on iTunes and then watch the film on November 5th on iTunes and on a number of other digital platforms, including Vimeo On Demand and Amazon Prime. And you can also, right now, watch the excellent trailer for Blink of an Eye in the show notes to this episode on our website. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Paul Taublieb. Well, Paul, how are you today and where are you today? I'm doing really good. I am sitting here in my home in Point Doom, Malibu, California, just down the road from the beach. That sounds tough. I lucked into a nice place and happy to be here. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation, and we certainly have a lot of ground to cover. But to get started, I want to ask you the question, let's say you show up at a party and you meet somebody new, and they ask you, what is it that you do? How do you answer that question? It's actually a good question. I like that. Um, basically, I just try to tell stories. Um, uh, and at parties, by the way, I'm really bad at small talk. I was not very successful with pretty girls in crowded rooms because I kind of want to talk about real things. I, I'm Not that I have a desire to do that. I used to envy people who could talk about their car or whatever people talked about and then still get the girl to leave the bar with them. I would end up asking about their childhood or their trauma or whatever just sort of came out and then they would go find somebody else who was more entertaining. So it's really about getting to the heart of stories. That's what I do is talk to people, listen to people candidly. You also manipulate people to get them to tell you a story. And so it's a combination of those things. And then there's a little bit of craft that goes with it. How do you make these things come out? Um, and understanding story structure. But it's really just telling stories and extracting stories from people. I do believe that everybody has an interesting story. We, if, if you find that Everybody's had crossroads in their life. The nature of drama is what do people do under difficult circumstance. That's what drama is. The choices you make when you're in a crucible. And whether it's huge stakes like a race in NASCAR or small stakes, everybody faces stakes. So if you approach it that way, there's usually something interesting to talk about. Backing up just for a second to my question, when you meet somebody new at a party, I thought, or I was curious if you would answer the question, well, I'm a film producer, or I'm a director, or I'm a screenwriter, but you do all of these things, so I guess you go broader than that. 
Yeah, because the, the, all those words, I find them difficult because they have connotations. You know, I'm not wearing a beret. I don't have a chair with my name on the back of it. And I find if you call yourself a filmmaker, you start thinking that you're something more than you are. I, you know, and then you get distracted from find the truth. Where's the heart of a story? And I try to simplify. Now, I have to deal with, I think, fairly complex things of getting rights, raising money, running budgets, planning, making creative decisions. Uh, on one of the other movies we had uh, that I did, that uh, I won two Emmy Awards in, for whatever that's worth. And, um, you know, we wanted the last shot of a guy paddling away from a helicopter. And it costs a lot of money to get a helicopter. And I was fighting with the, the, the financiers going, we need the helicopter. And they go, can't you just shoot the guy paddling away from the boat? It's going to cost us $10,000 for one shot for 30 seconds. I'm like, we got to have it. I don't care what it's going to cost. This is important. So I enjoy balancing um, work. I would say the most, if someone really wanted to understand where I come from, I'm a writer by trade originally. And I'm very, very grateful that I went through the, what I had to go through as a writer for magazines. I wrote for People Magazine, The Rolling Stone, Washington Post, New York Times. And I had really tough editors. I had one editor who, he didn't like my story. He would say, come up to, he asked me to come closer to the desk. Of course, the first time I fell for this. And then he would crush, take the paper. We had paper in those days. And crush the story together and throw it in my face and say, this is crap, get out of here, think about, start all over again, not give you any notes at all. And I used to hate that, of course, because what did he hate? But he would make you go back and rethink everything. And then later, as I progressed, he would actually then give me specific comments. But it's, it's, it's understanding classical storytelling. If, if that's the skill I have, it's because I, I was a philosophy major and an English major in college. So it's you know, trying to educate myself and then being able to articulate it. So it all starts with really classic storytelling and then the writing. Everything has to be written down before you get to the next stage. Well, Paul, as somebody who was also a philosophy and literature double major, <laughs> I think you may be my favorite person that I've ever had on this podcast. So, you know, well done. But let's back up even further for a second and talk about how it is that you got into filmmaking in the first place? My story is, is a little bit different and it's a little bit odd and it's also pretty simple. When I was 14 or 15, I was growing up in Great Neck, New York, which is a uber Jewish sub suburb of Manhattan. And it was all pretty much first generation um, people like my father who had worked their way out of the Brooklyn or Bronx ghetto and moved to the holy land of the suburbs. You know, it was the graduate, exactly what my life was. And I didn't fit in at all. But when I was a young teenager, my parents made what was to them for many years was a fateful mistake. I was a swimmer. That was the sport I enjoyed. I was, you know, not particularly good at it, but I liked to swim. So they took me to see the movie, The Endless Summer. And I was 13 or 14. My father was an accountant my mother was an insurance broker, very classic. You know, they had pulled them stuff up post Holocaust, you know, family. I had relatives who died in the Holocaust. I had a relative who had a number on his arm from being in the Holocaust. So that was a very sort of very still conscious thing. And um, so I saw this movie of these two guys who were traveling around the world surfing. I never surfed. And I looked at them and they seemed like adults to me because when you're 13, everybody's an adult who's over 17, right? And I thought, well, my father does this really boring thing of adding numbers all day. My mother talks to people about insurance. That seems ridiculous. But these guys travel around the world and surf. I'm going to be a surfer. I just decided right there. And I made my parents drive me to the beach. And I went out and I caught a wave. And literally my entire life has been built around everything that happened from that day forward. Um, I fell in love with the sport. I loved the physicality. I loved, at that time, it was really a counterculture sport. Just as a quick aside, when I got to college, I was at a school called Plattsburgh State in upstate New York, very small school. Um, a friend of mine, this was the other big turning point in my life, a guy, one of my you know, classmates said, let's quit college and go to Africa next year. And I thought, can you make that decision? I'm supposed to go be a lawyer or an accountant or something. I didn't, is this a choice that you can make? And I've been involved in surfing at this point pretty long time. Not, and I've never been very good at it. Just, I'm just barely can, I can just sort of perform in it. But I'm, I was strong enough as a swimmer, I could make up for them all the times I fell off. But my parents freaked out. I said, I'm going to go to Africa. They brought me home and sitting in my, my, and this is six hours away. 
and there was two strangers sitting in my house. One was in a suit and tie, and the other was like a crazy hippie. This was the 70s. And I said, who are these two people? So the first guy goes, I'm the, the hippie guy goes, hey, man, I'm, you must have a drug problem. And I used to be a junkie, and I had drugs. So if you have a drug problem, let's talk about it. And I said, dude, I'm not talking to you. I don't have a drug problem. I do drugs, and I don't have a problem. But then the next guy goes, okay, now you got to talk to the guy in the suit. The guy in the suit goes, I have your parents' will here. If you decide to go to Africa next year and are a quote-unquote surf bum, because in those days, surfing was really considered, you know, a degenerate behavior. And they said, we're going to write you out of the will. And, you have, and I said, fine, write me out. I had no concept of money. I didn't care. So I went off to Africa and spent a year traveling all through Africa, getting on freighters in the Indian Ocean and had all kinds of adventures that I could go on for hours. But it showed me that your choices in the world are not the ones that you, the world, you think the world has given you. Make whatever choice you want. There's really a lot of options out there. Don't follow along. I was going down a tunnel. And then once this Africa thing came along, I said, I made up this tunnel. It's not really there. I'm just following this straightforward path, which in my world was very straightforward. Jewish kid, Long Island, become a lawyer, become a stockbroker. And, you know, have two kids and move to Great Nick, you know, a version of it. I just didn't know you could just choose. So I just said, so I did that. My parents actually ended up becoming very, very supportive. Ended up surfing in some amazing places in the Indian Ocean and surfed some amazing waves and had amazing adventures. So that just opened my mind to do whatever you want. And then really every decision and everything that's happened to me, and I really have not had a plan Sort of, I moved to California. I tried to start a magazine at one time, then I moved to California to surf, and then ended up in the newspaper business, and then got trained and was in the magazine business, writing articles and writing and writing and writing. And that mental discipline and that skill is what served me, as I said, as a writer. And having, you know, read Kant and read Descartes, and, you know, much of which I didn't understand, but I tried. Because I also realized when I started, when I moved to New York and I got in the magazine world, I also became aware of my limitations. I saw really, really talented writers who were like, who could retain massive amounts of information, organize it, and then put out an article in the New Yorker. And I said, you know, I'm pretty good at what I do, but I'm a little more of a trickster than I am a real literary giant. I am not going to be Norman Mailer, who was my hero at the time, or Ernest Hemingway. I don't have the talent. But then I thought, well, if I get involved in this thing where you work as a producer or a director with other people, and you combine everybody's energy, still with my main vision. And I enjoyed, I didn't like sitting in a room. I used to smoke in those days. I literally, at one point, I was living with this girl. And we, she, had a, she was very wealthy. So I was kind of, oh, great, I'm up on the Upper West Side. But I literally had her clean out a closet with no windows for where I would sit and write. But I didn't want, I said, this is too lonely. I like talking to people. And that's when I got involved in producing and directing. And I made some exercise videos and found my way in. And home video was just, and with the whole home video thing, I had one of the first adopters of VHS tapes only because I wanted to watch surf movies. The old world of surfing was four-walling. Guys would make a movie and then go around and show them. That's how from The Endless Summer to Free Ride and all these movies. And that's why I became an adapter of VHS tapes and then started working in that world. And, and then along that time, which sort of dovetails back to where we are now, I got hired to make a bunch of videos about NASCAR. And a guy drives, flies me down to Atlanta, and I'm at this track, and there's 150,000 people and 100,000 people in the infield. I'm this guy from New York who this sport seemed totally ridiculous. I had never really heard of it. I knew it existed. And my first comment, which people still laugh about, is I said, do they always go left or they ever turn right? And everybody, of course, thought that was hilarious because they never go the other direction. They only turn left. Um, but I ended up making 25 videos in the world of NASCAR. Like you were saying earlier, I didn't know anything about it. But hey, wait, these people are sincere. They're really risky in their lives. The drama is high. They're going 200 miles an hour and they crash. So even though it is this southern sport and, you know, I heard some variety of comments that were kind of shocking for a New York liberal Jew and deep in the south and Talladega and places like that. I had an interview with a guy, I'll have to remain nameless, but we did a negotiation and he started off saying, if I said I was going to Jew you down, you'd be offended. But instead, if I just say you're sounding like a New Yorker, you'll know what I mean, but you can never say I said anything about you being Jewish. That's how he introduced himself. So, you know, I dealt with a lot of that, but I also came to have great respect for these drivers and what they were going through and the teams. And then I realized, wow, they got to win to get money and they get sponsors and there's TV and 
So that's how I, so when 20 years later, Blink of an Eye came along, I knew this world. I had met Dale Earnhardt. Um, I had been in a lot of the races and I immediately could, you know, was thrilled about the story because I knew what was really going on. So 20 years ago, you make these 25 NASCAR videos and then now today we're talking about this new film of yours, Blink of an Eye. Talk to me a little bit about these past 20 years, the in-between. I mean, over the years that followed, I did a lot of stuff in television. Um, I also got very involved accidentally in producing events. And some people say that I'm the person who maybe created or certainly helped create the X Games. I wrote the initial paper that was the white paper that was the foundation of the X Games. And while I continued to make content, for many years my main business was producing live events and mostly about motorcycles. And the story there was also I was at a, I did snowboarding for a few years and um, then I got involved in, in what's called the sport of freestyle motocross, which later led to one of my movies called Unchained, the untold story of freestyle motocross. And again, I'm actually in the movie. I didn't really want to be, but I had to be because of my involvement in going to ESPN and saying, hey, I want to produce these TV shows about this new sport. And they said, well, look, who's producing the sport? And I said, I don't know. Who does that? I'm a producer, TV producer. They go, well, you're going to have to do that too. So I suddenly became a promoter and a event producer out of necessity in order to make the content around it. And I had a partner and we were in business with ESPN and we ran a series and I learned about the foibles of trying to sell tickets and doing marketing. And, and in the dirt world, when you're in freestyle motocross, besides the fact you're dealing with some kind of strange characters, which also recently, not only led to Unchained, but led to a movie uh, about a guy named Brian Deegan, which we're now also in discussions to make a feature film about. Um, but I was a promoter, so it was all, but, but what distinguished me, or what I tried to have distinguished me anyways, was where's the story here? I don't want to just put dirt and ramps. I would meet, and because I was also responsible for the content, so I would try to design the courses and the way things would be laid out. Everything was about, I understood that it was an illusion creating, that we're making a show, even though it happens to be a live event. So I did live events for 15 years. Every time you saw a guy on a motorcycle go up in the air and backflip or twist or crash, I produced all of that. And that included moving dirt. You know, and I ended up, then that led to other business where we moved dirt. I went to Thailand and China and uh, South America, hauling motorcycles all over the world and then um, and then making content about it but the, the foundation of the business was the logistics of motorcycles and dirt and ramps but and then eventually I segued more in more recent years I'd really ESPN X Games went global and I did that for one year around the world and it was miserable it was way too much work way too much time and so it was a struggle to, to really financially make it work. Though I'm very, very grateful to the X Games. I don't want to, in any ways, you know, it was a fantastic thing. It led me to a lot of other relationships. Um, I still work with them very closely today. I work with some brands that are involved, particularly Monster Energy, with the X Games. Um, so, but then that led to Unchained. So then, coming back to this latest release of yours, Blink of an Eye, I've got a whole lot of thoughts about this film, but I'm very curious... If someone comes up to you and asks you, what is Blink of an Eye about? What's your answer? It's about friendship. It's about the power of friendship, the power of someone believing in you. You know, this guy was a loser. And I think we all, you know, he lost 462 races in a row and didn't give up. And someone believed in him. And then it, but the world's not fair. You know, uh, it's, it's, there, there's tragedy in it. And, um, but it's the power of friendship, power of someone believing in you. You know, what, what grit and determination. You know, I, I'm being a little flippant, but, you know, my life hasn't been like, oh, here's another deal and here's another check. It, everyone is a fight. Everyone's a battle. Everybody's fighting a battle. As Plato said, be kind to everybody. You don't know what battles they're fighting. I try to keep that in mind. And um, so I just think it was just so inspirational and with amazing characters. I, I, one thing, it's like someone handed me a home run. I just had to run the bases correctly. The story was there. And it goes all go back to, you know, structure. Stories are like, it's really architecture when you get into storytelling. The outside, it's like a body where there's a skeleton. 
you need the skeleton to put the pretty face on it. If you don't have the skeleton, if you don't have the structure, if you don't have the axe, if you don't have the complexity, you'll never create the body you want to create of the, what the final work is. So the hidden part is the structure, and that's the, the underpinnings of the story. And this had it in spades. So as a, as, a, as a professional storyteller, I go, wow, I have all the gifts I need here. And then emotionally, you know, you had a tragedy and you had a, a happy story and a great subject as well. Well, that makes me really happy to hear you say that the film is fundamentally about friendship, because when I finished watching the film, that is exactly the first note I wrote. This is a film about friendship. Um, mostly, though, I think this film is like a seven layer cake because there's a whole lot going on and a lot of different themes and topics. So I think first and foremost, this is a film about friendship. I think secondly, this is a film about brotherhood and two brothers. The third thing though, and I think this is a really important thing is, this film tells the story of Dale Earnhardt. And I remember, um, you know, almost 20 years ago, I remember the day in February hearing that something had happened to Dale Earnhardt. And I wasn't a race fan at the time. But I remember hearing that, and I didn't know the details. And this film, for me, just did an exceptional job of making clear why Dale mattered so much to the world of racing and to the community of race fans. And I think that shows just what an accomplishment this film actually is, because Again, for someone who has no interest in racing whatsoever, this is a film that I think people will really appreciate, again, given its kind of exploration of friendship and brotherhood. But I also think this is a film that works incredibly well to help those who don't know the first thing about NASCAR and maybe don't know much at all about Dale Earnhardt. This film is a way in, and I think it works incredibly well for the uninitiated, that said, I can't fathom that the most diehard NASCAR fans aren't going to think that this film was exceptionally well done also. And so... I think we should stop the interview now. I'm happy. That's all I needed to hear. <laughs> well, so... I, but I, this, gets to, this gets to my question. You know, when making a film or when writing a novel or something like that, it strikes me that one ought to pay a whole lot of attention... Uh, to the question of like, who is the audience of this project? And this is what I really wanted to ask you because I feel like this film works so well. Like I said, for somebody who doesn't know the first thing about NASCAR or the first thing about Dale Earnhardt or Michael Waltrip, but I also feel like the most passionate, most committed fans are going to find this film to be remarkable. And that strikes me as a very difficult thing to pull off. So I'm curious how intentional that was on your part, or if you thought I'm going to nail it for both of these very different groups. Well, here's how I, I know exactly what you mean. It is something that was very top of mind. It's something I addressed in also my movie uh, Unchained, because it's also an esoteric little world of idiots on motorcycles, or what people think are. But here's the, here's the real answer. If you tell a story at its heart, and also I always believe people care about people. They don't care about things, events, or anything else. People care about people. So if you say, okay, I'm going to tell a human story. And it wasn't that I filtered myself saying, I have to make sure the answer to this question also works for people who don't understand it. If your focus of your interviews, and it's all based around interviews, right? You're pulling the story out of people, is their emotional experience of what the facts that surround it the facts end up not being important. Um, like, I didn't, there's no great explanation in that movie about drafting. There's no technical explanation. But there's enough there that you understand that he thinks he could pass him at a certain point in time. But what's important is that when, when Michael thinks he can, wants to pass Dale on the, at the very end of the movie, you, you don't need to know about drafting and all that stuff. You may, it's there. But it's really about he decides to make an emotional decision. The truth comes through that, and you're telling a mainstream story. And then what you find is the hardcore fan 
completely understands what's going on, and someone like yourself who's not a fan, in fact, may even not like NASCAR, and that's one of the hurdles this film has faced, as soon as they say, oh, it's NASCAR, I don't want to watch it. I mean, I've had friends of mine go, Paul, you know, I don't really care about cars turning left for three hours, and, you know, I, they, people just sort of turned off by it, because it's just not a popular sport, and it certainly has all the connotations, people speak with accents and all this stuff. Um, I think it's been one of the hurdles in some places. When then, then when they see it, they go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. You're right, I didn't know. But, you know. We played it in New York, and there was all my old Jewish friends and family and cousins who had never, ever looked at a car going in circles, and they all loved it, and they were all crying. Um, so I would encourage your listeners, even if you don't think you care about NASCAR, if you care about human beings and drama and sacrifice and friendship and you know grit and determination, you'll be, you'll be very entertained. Um, so the answer is, um, I feel you don't have to worry about it if you keep your eye on the focus of telling a human story, what's at stake for these human beings, the rest all falls into place. With just, and then you just have to have a little bit of skill of guiding the story to make sure you understand a sponsor is needed in order to get the car on the track. Um, but look, this story is also about a brother who didn't really kind of, who, who, who admits really for the first time. They were crying when Michael and, and Daryl saw the movie for the first time. We had a screening in Charlotte, actually. Um, the two brothers started hugging and crying. Daryl had never apologized to his brother for being a dick during the early days of their careers. Uh, that screening, by the way, was also, you talk about what was interesting. We played the screening in Charlotte the first time. That was the first time it had been seen to all NASCAR people. And I had no idea how they were going to react. And the movie, the, the lights come up. And there was this sort of quiet applause. And I was like, well, that's not so great. But then I turned around and looked. Everybody was hugging and crying. It was personally emotional. And the NASCAR community, in some ways, that stoic Southern thing, this was a chance people, remote, people have written to me about, I'm mourning for the first time. I finally can move on the way Michael is moving on. His pain was their pain. And um, it's been very cathartic to a lot of people. I have no trouble at all believing that that's true. And I think, again, coming back to this sort of needle you've threaded or these dual aims that I think you've hit with this film, you know, we've talked about, I think this is a film that works incredibly well and will be incredibly compelling for people who don't know much about NASCAR or don't care. I think this film does a great job at opening up this world for them. And as we've said, I think this is going to be a film that is going to work really well. And as you just said, it, it can be a form of catharsis uh, for people who knew the most about these events and cared the most for the various actors and players involved. And I think there's another layer to this that in a way this telling of the Dale Earnhardt story, you really are now telling the story about the hero of a large community. And I think that anytime a filmmaker comes in or a novelist comes in or a journalist comes in and is going to tell this story of the hero of a community, whether it's a figure in skiing or whether it's a political figure or whether it's a NASCAR racer, you are now treading on a kind of hallowed ground. Well, that, that's absolutely correct. Um, that's, that's, you take, one of the things when you, I, I'm a little bit flippant maybe, but I take it really seriously when you're dealing with real people and real lives and real memories. And another movie I did, I uh, was called Hawaiian, The Legend of Eddie Aikau. It was an ESPN 30 for 30. And this was about a Hawaiian legend who is really important. And I'm a surfer and I knew about Eddie and, um, I went over to Hawaii to, to, to get the deal done. I had to meet the Aikau family. And it was a kind of a crazy story where we got to the airport, we were changing planes, and we were with some low-rent airline, and they said, we're canceling the flight because there's not enough people here in the airport, which you're not allowed to do, but they didn't care. So I go, man, I'm going to meet the Aikaus. They're waiting for me over on uh, the Big Island. And the guy goes, the Aikaus? Hold on a second. He called another plane back from the runway to get me on the plane to go meet the family. And that was my first indication of just how important this figure was to this entire, really, what is an island nation that's under siege or uh, uh, occupied by an, an outside people. Um, and so I've always taken it very seriously. I was a journalist for a long time. 
you know, for, like I said, for different magazines and Washington Post. And you're interviewing people. You, you have to be sensitive. This is their lives. They're not just subject for your, you know, entertainment fodder. I do think a lot of journalists don't take that seriously enough. And it, sometimes people are not happy. But, you know, in this case, I knew the beauty was you could tell Dale's story through Michael. You know, it's not the Dale Earnhardt movie where you have to, and, and that way everything is just Michael's perspective of him. And it made it, it was a great vehicle for telling the story. There's another thing I want to bring up about this film. I think that, you know, for anyone who maybe is pretty dismissive of NASCAR racing or like, what do these drivers even have to do, right? Like, yeah, they're just driving around a circle, only making left turns. Like, how hard can that be? I think that one of the great things that this film does is show just how high the stakes are and the level of strategy and attention and the like. And one of my favorite lines in the film, I'm afraid I don't recall exactly who said it, but the line stuck with me. Um, they basically said that racing is a chess match that's taking place at high speed. It's uh, Michael actually talking about it during the Daytona race, right before the big crash. Yeah, I mean, that's the, I have to give a lot of credit to the editor. And, and like, you know... One of the unfair parts about the filmmaking, you know, from the public face of it is the director, in this case me, gets this sort of focus. Like, oh, let me ask you, let me ask you, whatever. Um, but there was a lot of other people who made this movie happen on a creative level, not even getting to the business side of it, which was some really important people. Finding the money and getting it done is always a big, big challenge, particularly in the documentary world. But in this case, the editor did a great job. You know, I ha gave him the story, but, you know picking those sound bites, but then we were dealing with footage that was 20 years old and kind of crappy. But we, we had to find a visual thing, so we took that footage and looked at lots of different looks. So when he's ta talking about that, a chess match at high speed, I think it was him. No, it was Daryl. It was his brother on the, on the live race call, actually, now that I think about it. Um, it was making that footage feel fresh and oversaturating it and we didn't want it to look like what it really looked like at that time. Everything had to be more cinematic. So we went to a colorist who then adjusted the, the whole color. Um, just as a technical thing, if you're interested, like when you see the interviews, a little trick that I did, because I knew there'd be a lot of interviews, I'll be interview heavy, obviously, was the background for each person. You think you saw those cars behind you, which there were, but we moved them each time. We changed the angles. We moved them around, moved them a little bit. They were on different types of jacks, so they were actually angled a little bit. Because I wanted the brain to feel each person had something slightly different, to just keep a little bit more energy in the shot so it didn't feel as static. And so as you're intercutting between them, the background is actually changing at the same time. And it just gives a little bit more energy that you don't consciously feel, but is there, as well as having a second camera that's moving. But... Yeah, I mean, you do come away to get back to your question. Um, and it goes back to, again, just being really sincere about the story, following it, making sure everybody understands it, making sure it's clear and clean, what's at stake. Um, and because you, you see it, it's just so human, you, you're focusing on the humanity, and then you, start to, you become respectful of what they're doing because you realize how respectful they are. Um, and... You're also used to professional athletes in most settings, you know, that quick soundbite after a race or after a game. Um, but this type of setting, one of the other reasons, by the way, in, in all my movies, what I do is I build a big set like this. And what you don't see is I actually put really big lights up and put up big shades on the lights. I want these people to actually be very uncomfortable, not like this idea, oh, let's go to their house where they feel comfortable to talk. I have the opposite theory. Put them in a situation where they feel like they're in the police thing being grilled for a crime. Make them feel on the spot. And also, they now know that I'm really serious. I'm not just winging into their house and setting up a light. A set has been built, what they have to say. They're like on a pedestal. And people, what I find, rise to the occasion. Okay, they're serious. I'm going to be serious. And they're, the other thing is the way the lights are set up, they can kind of see me doing the interview, but they're also kind of blasted by lights. So... They're kind of isolated, and that little bit of tension, once you once they kind of settle in, makes them more emotional and makes people want to give you more than if they were sitting, you know, comfortably in their house. When did you kind of come across or discover 
that technique. When I were doing the Eddie movie, here's the funniest. I've done, done a lot of production in the surf world, right? And, I, and you'd end up on the North Shore of Oahu because that's where most of the surfing is. It is the worst place on the planet to try to do an interview. You have roosters everywhere. You have military helicopters. You have tourist helicopters. And worst of all, because you're in the jungle, you've got gardeners with weed whackers all the time. So I, when I still go over there, because I still have to do some work there, I literally come over with a pocket full of $20 bills to walk around to hand, hand to gardeners to take an hour break. Because the noise is terrible. It, it, it's maddening. So when we went to do the Eddie thing, I said, we're going to a, a, a soundstage somewhere, and I'm building a set. I can't stop and go and stop and go. So that's when I realized this technique really works. And that's what we did for Unchained, and then we did it again here for Blink of an Eye. Um, so, and then I've always felt when I've done interviews, cause I've done it like, like yourself, you've done a lot of them. Um, you know, it, the other thing is time, I think is a big factor. I give these people two to three hours, even if I know they may not be in the movie very much. Cause you never know. That's the other thing is you never know who's really going to come through with the goods. One of my great regrets about Blink is he had a, a, a niece who was with him the whole time, Michael with him the whole time during the race and the night of the, of the tragedy and she was a school teacher and she had never been interviewed before. So she was fantastic and hugely emotional. And she was the eyewitness to everything. But we just couldn't, every time we try to stick her interviews in, it sort of just derailed things. So it ended up not getting in the movie. Um, but you, we, I thought, you know, you never know where the gold is going to come from. You don't know who's going to give you that. You know, we found that historian, Kenny Martin, who gave us just these little bits of connective tissue where we needed that context. Um, so I also, I like taking two to three hours. Uh, my, the secret is you wear people down. You just keep hammering at them and asking them and reframing questions sometimes until you, you know, I usually kind of know what I'm going for and I'm kind of editing the whole movie in my mind while it's happening. One of the other sort of semi-funny things that happened, we get down to Charlotte, we're doing the interviews and I feel really bad with the first set, the second set of interviews, I think it was. And I'm starting to get sicker and sicker while we're doing it. So much so I'm coughing and I sound terrible. Like I sound, you know, like, you know, really, really bad. Um, and I was getting exhausted. I would run back to the, the hotel was across the street and I would sleep for a half hour and come back. And at night I would just go collapse. Turned out I had pneumonia. I ended up coming home and going to the hospital. I was in the hospital for three days and they said, you were really sick. If you had kept going, you might have had a, a really bad outcome here. Um, and I always wonder, maybe that helped me because I couldn't really think too clearly. But I just kept, but the editor said they were kind of mad because you'd hear my gurgly cough from time to time. Um, and they said, no, you were, you were really, really ill. And Lily went in the hospital for three days. Anyways, you wear people down and you, you, you get to that emotional core. And the thing, particularly the one good thing about the NASCAR people, they're not used to it. Right. They 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 don't they're used to doing these very superficial. The sport, one of the reasons it's been so well received, almost everything in NASCAR is kept at this very kind of keep the sponsors happy level. And the journalists are trained and it's you know, there's a whole symbiotic world of, of TV and sponsors and drivers who all kind of keep things kind of superficial. So the good news was because they haven't been grilled the way I do this thing. They were fresh. They had never told these types of stories. Everything had always been. So when you break through that, that crust, it's raw. They, they, couldn't, they didn't know how to control their emotion because they had never dealt with it before. I can't wait for people who are listening to this conversation to remember what you just said as they watch this film. Because I promise that what you just said is going to resonate. Um, it's totally true and this movie is raw. And this actually makes a lot of sense that these racers, there's this context and this culture where these racers are like, hey, of course we don't show emotion. We're grown ass men and we've got sponsors to take care of and please, and we've got races to win. And Michael is the other thing. He is, and look, a lot of the, 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 the credit needs to go to how honest he was. And also, he's an emotional kind of a wreck of a guy. One time during the filming, I went out to my car to get something, and he was in the parking lot. He, wouldn't, he couldn't sit through the interviews. He couldn't sit inside. But he was in the car bawling. I, I have this little bit of a theory that, you know, his parents didn't really help him. His brother didn't really help him. Some people helped him. 
Then he went through this 15 years of all these losses. And imagine that 15 years of losing and losing. And then finally, the greatest guy in the sport says, I believe in you. And it's, you know, and it's like, and they were 20 years apart in age, but they were friends and there was whatever that magic between them was. And then, you know, then to have it taken away, I think it was really traumatic traumatic for Michael. I think it, it wasn't just, he lost the only person, not his brother, not his father, because, you know, he was close to his father, but when, as it's in the film, when, when Michael wanted to pursue his dream, his dad said, I don't got it for you, son. I did it for your older brother. I'm too tired and too old. And his brother didn't help him, and then nobody helped him for all those years. He fought his own way there. But then, so he, other people wouldn't, the same thing happening to other people wouldn't have been as good. Michael actually made it wonderful. And because he came to the table saying, I'm going to share my story. I'm not going to hold it any back. This is who I am. And he, he just gave it up. And also, um, he's a TV personality, right? He's on television. So he knew how to do it. He, he wasn't sh- uncomfortable. Um, he also was totally committed to time. You'd be amazed sometimes. People go, I'll give you an hour. And we, he was probably interviewed for a total of 10 to 12 hours. Um, and he just wanted to do it. He, he wasn't reticent. He goes, yeah, let's sit down. Let's go over that again. Let me say that again. Um, and... You know, it was a lot of stuff we went through. Obviously, didn't make the movie, but he was he was there and he, he committed to it. And 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 I commend him for being his attitude is this is and he he has said this many times. He only cared about two people's opinion about this movie. I suspect he's being a little bit facetious, but um, and that was Dale Jr., Dale's son, who's in the movie as well, who was amazing, and his ex-wife. One of the great stories about. The, the playing of the movie, when we played it in Charlotte, he's divorced from his, his ex-wife now, obviously, uh, who was in the movie. He was also very good and very helpful. Um, we, I was walking into the movie um, to the screening, and I ran into the ex-wife and her parents. And her father, I didn't really pay too much attention at the time, but he was kind of standoffish, the dad, the, you know, his ex-father-in-law. You know, shook my hand, but I could just, I remember feeling distinctly, this guy does not seem like he wants to be here, but I didn't really pay that much attention. Well, after the movie, we all went out to dinner, and this father-in-law turns to Michael and says, I owe you an apology. Um, I didn't, you know, things didn't go great with, you know, the end between your daughter, my daughter and you. He goes, I had no idea what you were going through, Michael, and I apologize, and now I understand some of the things that happened, you know, when the marriage fell apart. He could tell that Michael had really been damaged, and the, the wife was sort of collateral damage from that. And uh, as a filmmaker, it's pretty gratifying that you, you know, see a family coming together over the truth that's where, that Michael was courageous enough to, to share. Yeah. And by the way, one thing I've got to say, um, you know, I think maybe especially in the trailer, um, it's possible to get this perception, right, that, I don't know, Michael is kind of this lovable guy, but maybe, you know, kind of this lovable loser. He's Owen 462. And... You know, I think this is one thing where diehard fans will know about Michael. But for those of us coming in, it's possible to get this sense that, like, I don't know, this guy just is kind of this loser. And I guess the thing I want to say is, like, this dude could drive. This dude was good. Right. We left in, and some people have said, oh, why'd you put in all that stuff about him in the early days and winning and going? I go, I wanted you to know he didn't just show up at NASCAR and then was bad. He was a winning driver. He had the talent. And we went through a lot of time explaining that. But the thing about NASCAR, and it's true, the racing world is a very, very cruel world. If you don't have a sponsor, you're not going racing. Money equals speed. And this is one of the things I didn't want to get, which is too much inside the tent. You know, he didn't have good teams. I mean, he was a good driver, but part of the problem was he was not a, he, he also, again, I didn't want to get into the nuances of NASCAR. He, he didn't, you know, he, as he said, he made some choices that were not always the best team that he would go with. You know, he was taking the short dollar sometimes, and then a lot of it was bad luck. But, um, you know, but, but that's why it was such a kismet thing when Dale Earnhardt said, you're going to be in my car, which is the best car. And you're going to be on this team, which is the best team. Um, so he was a good driver. I mean, the one thing we had to leave out, which I'll be happy to talk about, every year NASCAR has a race called the All-Star Race. It's a non-points paying race, right? It's like the all-star game in baseball. I wouldn't call it a joke, but it's not as serious as everything else. 
and NASCAR has that as well. They have this thing called the All-Star Race. And all the and you have to qualify for it. Not everybody gets in. Only the top, I think, 15 cars or 20 cars. So Michael got into that. And one year, he won the All-Star Race. He beat all the best of NASCAR's drivers that night. He was the best that night. And it was not B-level guys. It was all the big names. The problem with it is, and we had it in an early cut, it's just when you say, well, he did win one race, but then he lost all these other races, and this race didn't really count, but he did beat the best guys. He wanted it in there. You go, oh, you got to tell him, Paul, that I beat them all. I beat everybody once. I said, Michael, I'm going to have to take it out. It's, it just confuses people. It's going to ruin the narrative of this story. And it didn't really count. Nobody else counted it. I mean, it's in this weird category of who was the MVP from last year's NBA game. I don't know, and I don't care. Um, to that guy probably does care, but he don't. No, we don't care. So I said, Michael, I'm sorry. It's structurally, I know why you want it, but I can't put it in there. Um, it, it just won't work for us. So unfortunately, his one win that he had, which is not a points win, it's not a, it's, it's a real win, but not a real win. Well, switching gears here for a second, I want to ask you um, either from what you've observed having been around these elite racers uh, for so long or from whatever conversations you've had, what do you think are the defining characteristics of the best NASCAR racers? What's the separator? What's the difference? Here's the answer. And it was given to me by Richard Petty, who's also a lovely uh, personality in the, uh, in the movie. When we were sitting around talking around the interviews, I was kind of asking him the same question. And he, I said, I asked him, like, are you worried? Don't you drivers worry about crashes? And how do you recover? And he said, Paul, he goes, this was not a good thing in the long run for my personal life, which I thought was interesting that he would start that off this way. He goes, it wasn't good for me as a father, and it wasn't good for me as a husband, and it wasn't good for me as a boss because he ran a race team. He goes, but to be successful at this, you have to be able to be in the present completely, even when you're out of the race car. He goes... You can't, and he, he's very funny. He goes, you know, you can't, you can't do anything about the crash that already happened. And you can't do anything about the crash that's going to happen that you don't know about. So you might as well just be in the present and not worry about anything. And he goes, that's the secret, is being 100% in the present, not letting your mind wander. He said the problem for him was, he goes, I lived my life that way. I didn't want to, I had to stay in that all the time. So when I had to worry about my kids in school or my wife's problems, he goes, I didn't want to deal with any of it. I just wanted to stay in the moment. And when I spent a lot of time around motorcycle guys, they kind of live this kind of nihilistic life. Because if you start thinking about what could go wrong and what the implications of it, uh, one of my other favorite comments was I interviewed Travis Pastrana about this topic. And he had a different way of dealing with it. Because every time I get to the top of the ramp, and this is the guy who's the freestyle motocross guy who pioneered backflips and giant tricks for people who don't know. Um, he said, I'd get at the top of the ramp and I'd be really nervous and really scared. And then I would say to myself, what's the worst that could happen? He goes, worst that could happen is I could die. He goes, well, if I'm dead, I won't feel anything. So don't have to worry about that. Second worst thing is I could get end up in a wheelchair. He goes, well, that's kind of a bummer, but I know lots of people in wheelchairs and they seem pretty happy. It's not great, but they're okay. They still have a life. He goes, anything after that is just, I've already been crashed so many times. You just go to pain and then you, re you rehab. He goes, so after that, I go, just go have fun, which was the same version of the same thing of being in the present. And that's, that, that I think is the joy these athletes get is this complete moment where they're not being thinking back or thinking forward. They're just fully experiencing reality at a level that we like to watch that most of us don't get to experience. What was the most surprising thing you learned in the process of writing and making Blink of an Eye? I, I guess I didn't know just how much the drivers, particularly Michael, they seem so stoic on the outside, just the degree of emotionality that was really going on, how much winning really meant, um, and how each guy was so distinct um, and what, for some reason, what pops into my mind as we asked the question was the comment about Dale Earnhardt, uh, as revealing about his nature, this concept of being of self-awareness that Dale had power because he understood he had power. And 
when you see someone walk down the red carpet who one of these big celebrities and you realize they understand their power of their celebrityhood. Um, I'm not sure that answers your question. Um, what surprised me the most? I don't know if I was that surprised necessarily about anything. I guess, as usual, it's how long it took to edit the thing and dealing with all the pain in the ass and recutting and recutting. I thought maybe this time it wouldn't be that difficult. I had a great editing team. I have to give Paul Buell in particular, the editor. He deserves credit. He kept hearing a lot of my crazy ideas, and we tried a lot of things that we had to take out, even as it is, it runs fairly long. Um, but in terms of what really surprised me, and I guess what really surprised me now that I think about it is, which I shouldn't have, has been this odd reaction of some people who don't even want to look at the film because they're so turned off by the idea of NASCAR. And I'm thinking, wait a second, you went and watched Free Solo, you don't care about people who are, want to climb mountains, but... There's something about the sport today, and the sport is in kind of a tough time. And ratings are way down. Attendance is way down. Um, it's kind of lost. It's, you know, it's not green, to say the least. Um, they've, they've made a lot of weird strategic decisions, the, the sanctioning body, with cars and tracks and networks. So it, there's not a big happy halo around the sport. Um, I guess I was surprised at first NASCAR itself was a little wary of it. And I kept thinking, this is going to be good for you guys. But they've since come around to realize this is a great story for their sport and for their history and their heritage. Um, but I guess more than anything, it was that I really thought people would be more open-minded to watch it. But a lot of people, even friends, I don't want to see that, Paul. You do good work, but I don't care about cars. That's kind of silly. The lack of respect for people putting their lives on the line and, and how they take it so seriously. Yeah, you know, I, it's funny. I I don't think that this film has a single political bone in its body. And yet, if there are those who are refusing to watch a great film or read a well-done article or a compelling novel about an event or a community, and we refuse to watch or read this on the grounds that, well, we simply aren't open to that. That, I think, does have ramifications that are politically important. And it seems to be a really terrible way for a democratic society to be operating, even though it seems that that is exactly how we are operating more and more and more. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a very astute observation. What we see of this bifurcation of the country today is, is reflected in that. Like, I won't even give, give that a chance. Even though politically I'm not aligned with most of the people that I see in the infield at NASCAR, you have to give them respect for the, what they believe in. And that's that's what I learned to do. I mean, I, there's a lot of flags flying in the infield there and, and posters that are, surprise me, which make me uncomfortable in the world of NASCAR. But I, on the other hand, I, I grant them their right to have it, and their love of the sport is just love. It's not actually political at that level, um, and anybody who says, well, they're driving cars and burning gas for no reason, you know, I just can't really put up with that. Or it's like, well, you drive to go play baseball or whatever you do. Like, you know, you, you know, we, we're not a green society. <laughs> you don't get to pin your animosity because a bunch of cars go in circles for three hours um, and or look down on them. And that's what I hope the film did is you can look at these guys and go, yeah, they talk with a twang. But there's a sincerity here and an honesty here. Um that hopefully people will be open-minded to see. And yeah, I think in this case, it may be a lot of quote-unquote liberals or people who think they're too well-educated to spend any amount of time learning more about this sport. And it's like, what happened to being open-minded enough to go experience new things or different things that others are deeply passionate about? Man, that does not bode well for us especially when all we're asking for is to be open-minded about the best elements of a community to maybe better understand it and or maybe even gain some appreciation of it. If we're not willing to do that, that's actually scary. I'm really glad you brought this up because it's uh, something I hadn't really thought about. And I think you're absolutely right on that, that to close your mind off. Like when we had, I had a meeting when this film was starting with these PR people in New York and they're really... When I first met them, I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be a problem because they were these super fashionista PR women, high powered. They had done big feature films and uh, we had a preliminary hello. 
And then they went to see the the movie, and I was like, I don't know, man. These are some like these are women in Louboutins or whatever they're called, you know. And they called up and they said, we are dedicating ourselves to the PR for this movie. We loved it. And I was like, I really was one of those kind of, wow, they liked it. Anybody could like it. The biggest, the only other the criticism we received, and I, I think it's a valid criticism, but I think it's also short-sighted, is you didn't investigate the cause of Dale Earnhardt's death. Because there was a lot of controversy around it. To this day, nobody quite knows what actually killed him. There was rumors at the time of a seatbelt was bad. There were comments that his open face helmet, that his, his he used to ride with loose um, seatbelt straps because he liked to move around more than most guys, which is very, very dangerous. There was rumors that his seat came off and that's what it hit. Nobody knows. There was a report. It was buried by NASCAR. So to this day, nobody knows. The other thing, and this is a fair criticism, you know, it took, as it says at the end of the movie, it took Dale Earnhardt's death to them to mandate the Hans device and to mandate these soft walls that they have. So people, one person criticized, how come you didn't write about NASCAR's negligence in not, you know, doing that sooner? And this, maybe there's a case for that. I, you know, I don't, you know, I see both sides of the story. Um, it had been a certain way. People at NASCAR said, look, we're not, you know, we, we don't know how to mandate safety. The drivers don't, see, you know, it's a, it's a complicated, delicate question. But I go, it's not my movie. I'm, I'm, you know, that's a different movie. The, the untimely death of Dale Earnhardt, someone else should go make it if you can figure out how to do it. Mine was about friendship. And I felt that was kind of an unfair criticism because even if we had put it in, it wouldn't have changed anything in the movie. It wouldn't have added anything. He died because, you know, he died trying to help his buddies. And uh, that's all there is to it now, whether, he, you know, and if you go back, you know, there was a time years, years, 20, 30 years before that, where a lot of drivers died because of tires. The original guy who started NASCAR, Bill France Sr., he wanted stock cars to be stock. That was his dream. The car you drive is the car they race. And it was a good marketing tool, but it wasn't good if you were a race car driver and you crashed. So he made them use stock tires that you could buy off the shelf. Well, they're not made for going 500 miles in circles really fast. So they would blow out and people would crash and he wouldn't change it for a long time. Um... But then eventually he did. So it's an incremental thing. And it took one year when like four or five NASCAR guys died in a single year that they finally made a whole bunch of safety changes. And I think that's not that unusual. You know, you people respond sometimes to tragedies to then make changes. I think that's probably a lot of stories like that. So I felt that was a little bit of an unfair criticism. And the guy went on and on about it. And I was like, hey, man, he even apologized in his own review, saying maybe this is not what needs to be discussed. But on the other hand, it really bothers me. I mean, another thing that's true of literally every story in the world ever is that there are almost an infinite number of angles to every story. And so to criticize this film for not bringing up that specific point, and, and I mean, the film does talk about the fact that there has not been a NASCAR death since Dale's. <laughs> this is the one thing I wasn't really prepared for was the PR people who I mentioned, they did a great job. We had gotten massive amounts of publicity. And my wife chides me about that. She's also my producing partner. Um, and you read 20 good reviews, but you read one bad one, and all you think about is the bad one. I had, I, it, it, it's, it's a strange part of your person. How could that guy say that? And she goes, but the New York Times liked it. But this guy from the Orlando Sentinel, you know, <laughs> And she goes, you're still mad about that one review? Didn't you see all this other stuff? I go, yeah, but why did that guy say that? It, it's weird about human nature. I kind of think, why am I, why am I obsessing about the, the clearly not the overall reception? Um, working with my wife, by the way, is one of the more interesting parts of this um, because she's not an NASCAR fan. But it's it, and it's, sometimes it's kind of weird to go working together and then coming home together. Um, but it's really one of the joys we have of something in common. And she brings such a different perspective. The other thing about it that's really, really terribly horrible is she'll go, Paul, you can do better. That scene doesn't quite work. I go, what should I do? He goes, you go figure it out. But she's very, very tough. And she also has shaped from the very beginning, because we've done all these movies together. Because I hear her voice, I've always gone out of my way to have women in my films. Men are not always the greatest at being self-reflective and emotional. And I have always found like in the Unchained, you know, it's Travis's mother talking about what it's like to see her son maybe go die engages you emotionally. Because that, you, you know, you go back to your, what we were talking about earlier 
about the, how do you tell the story. If you stay true to emotion, you don't have to worry about information because the emotional through line, everybody can relate to. And then the facts end up organically and naturally following around that. You don't have to go, let me explain how a car works or you get into the mechanics because it's not about the car. Nobody cares about the car. They care about the human uh, experience. So stay to that and everything else tends to fall. And sometimes you need to deal with a technical issue, but if you put it in, like my tire broke or my engine broke and I lost another race, the context is him losing another race. By the way, one of the other, my favorite parts of this movie are two musical things. One is... The, there's a song in the middle in two parts during the, we, we, we were grappled. How do you deal with 462 losses? I mean, that's just such an enormous number. So we put it in like a montage rather than making it a very super detailed thing. Well, my son, who's now in college, he wrote this very mournful song and scored those two sections. So it's a big thrill as a dad to have your son's music. And then the opening music, when Michael is driving down the road was written by one of the producers and then a band called 38 Special, uh, a Nashville band and a singer named Bobby Capps uh, recorded that song. So we came out with a music video and the whole opening scene and the song's called In the Blink of an Eye. And uh, it's, it's, it was kind of a fun part of the movie, uh, making it. I'd like to hear you talk about how you think Blink of an Eye fits in with your other work. It feels to me, uh, thank you for the question. Um, my career in this form of filmmaking started with a movie called Fastest about MotoGP racing. And it was very successful, but I was the producer and not the director. And I butted head with the directors because I really am a director at heart. I'm a creative person as well as a producer. And it was very difficult to not have control of the film. And I kept wanting to do things and it still was very successful, but I saw this feature documentary is something that I felt immediately drawn to because I've done lots of short form things. I've made YouTube videos. I have viral videos with one video, a soccer spoof video that has 250 million views. So I've done that as well. But I love this long form thing of immersing yourself into a world. And I, I really do feel that of all, that I've, all these other movies that I've done have led to Blink of an Eye. I feel it's my best work. I'm most proud of it because it's completely mine. I wrote it. I produced it. I directed it. I had complete control of it. Um, the financiers were hands off. They say, you're the filmmaker. We gave you the money. I got comments and I got suggestions that I would either accept or reject. Um, my deal with Michael was the same thing. I said, Michael, I want all the input you can give me, but ultimately I'm going to make the decisions. And he was not too happy initially, but because I did adopt his suggestions and I clearly was listening to what he said, um, he was good. So I felt also, like I said, there's a lot of craft involved. And part of that craft is hiring the right people and not doing stuff. I am not an editor. And I hired this guy, Paul Buell, and a company that he works for. And I gave them a lot of free room. And I thought, well, they're doing a great job. So shaping them and the skill and the music and the sound design, the challenges of taking old footage, like I said, I'm very proud of the set we built. And like I said, that little secret I came up with of moving the cars. They're also, they're not static. I mean, they're aimed a certain way. They're angled. It just gives this little bit of extra energy that I think helps the film subconsciously or subliminally. I guess I feel like of all the ones I've done, this is, you know, and, and having worked in NASCAR many years ago, um, I came with a knowledge base, but not, but I wasn't an insider. So I was fortunate to be both an insider a little bit, but really an outsider. So that helped a lot. I, I really feel like it's the best work I've done. Well, I think it's a real achievement. And mostly I just can't wait for more people to see it. Uh, and again, I think, I just cannot imagine that diehard NASCAR fans are not going to love this film. And I also just really think that for the audience who doesn't know much about NASCAR or doesn't care about NASCAR, I think those folks um, are going to be very surprised. I think this is going to be a very unexpected film. Um, and I'm just really eager for both of those camps to see this thing. So yeah, let's, let's talk about how and when people can see this film. November 5th, you can pre-order now on iTunes. And we'd like to encourage people to pre-order because the more people that pre-order, the higher it gets up in their algorithm world. Uh, but November 5th, it'll be on iTunes, on Vimeo On Demand, uh, I believe Xbox, and there's a few other platforms, so Amazon Prime. 
so it's available. And then eventually there'll be a DVD, re- DVD release at some point. Interesting, many of the comments on social media, when is it going to be on DVD? Which you don't hear very much anymore. But for the NASCAR fan, because they're a little bit older, maybe not quite as technologically cutting edge, um, they, they've asked for it. So we will, we're in the process. It's kind of hard to find someone to do DVD distribution. Uh, but it will come out on that later in the year, and then it'll. We're, we're talking to all the other major, uh, major platforms. So, uh, well, thank you. I really it's been really really enjoyable talking to you, and I love the idea of what you brought up about closed mindedness and open mindedness. Because I want people to be open minded to see my film for what it is. It's not a NASCAR movie, but um, uh, a, a lot of closure for NASCAR fans. I, we've we've received a lot of responses about that as well. Well, Paul, thank you. Congratulations on this film. Thank you. Very, very kind of you. Thank you for your time. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Paul for the conversation. And don't forget to pre-order Blink of an Eye on iTunes now. Then watch it on November 5th on iTunes or a number of other digital platforms. And again, I'd also encourage you to check out the trailer for the film in the show notes to this episode on our website. I want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode, and I want to thank you for listening. If you are enjoying these conversations, we would love it if you would subscribe to the Blister Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice little rating or review in iTunes, and be sure to tell your friends about the show. Thanks, everybody. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.